0: Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy
1: and Renee. Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. I'm your host today, I am Tim Muirhead, and I am currently on a camping trip, and I'm sitting on the edge of a river... In the rain, getting eaten alive by mosquitoes, trying to record some thunder because uh, there's a storm about to be rolling in big time. The rain's just started, but there's been some distant thunder crackling and, you know, obviously the second you hit record, it all stops. So I haven't got anything yet, so I thought maybe I would uh, record an intro to today's episode while I waited for some thunder. So if I suddenly stop talking, it's because the thunder's starting to roll again. Know if you could hear that, but there's a little one rippling off in the distance, so hopefully they start getting closer. Today's episode is an interview with Bob Hine. It's part of the uh, trip to New York City that uh, Teresa and I went on. If you go and listen to episode 56, you can hear all about our trip and who else we interviewed and such. But this is the first one of the long form uh, episodes from those interviews, and this is with Bob Hine. He works at Harbor Sound. And he's worked on so many of my favorite films, he's worked with some of my favorite directors, and uh, in this interview he talks about all that, and I think it's a really great interview. He's a really interesting guy, and he was really, really nice to stay late after work to sit down with us and do this interview, because he didn't have to, but he did, and we really appreciate that. So here is our interview with Bob Hines, sitting down in New York City. Oh. Another little one rippling by. Anyway, I'm on a river in northern Canada in the rain, being eaten by mosquitoes, and now we're going to cut to Harbor Sound in downtown Manhattan. Here we go, Bob Hine. to know you a little bit. How did you get into sound originally?
0: I started out as a documentary cameraman out of NYU, and I was shooting all kinds of things, and I was asked to sound edit something. I said, sure, I'm doing everything. I'll do it, and I loved it. And next thing I knew, I was hired on a TV show as a sound editor, as a young guy. I just found it to be my niche in the documentary camera stuff which was almost impossible to make a living at <laughs> I went by the wayside. But I love that too. But um something about controlling this space and creating all these sounds kind of worked for me as a as my personality. I don't know exactly how to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. I realize that if you're gonna do this, features is the kind of apex of the craft. So I decided I needed to get into features. And this is an interesting story, actually. So all the features in New York were posted in two places, in the Brill Building at Sound Juan, Juan. Juan and at Tadio at 54th Street. And that building is gone and Sound One is gone now. But at the time, that was it. It was a very small industry. And when I was trying to become an assistant, I tried to get on Reds, which was the big Warren Beatty movie. And I spent a lot of time hanging around there, and they were very nice to me, but they never hired me. So I went to the Brill Building one day, out of the blue, and a friend of mine was working there, and he introduced me to Chick Ciccolini, who's since retired but was a sound editor in New York for Features. And Chick said to me, you want a job? I said, yeah, that's what I want. He said, come with me. And we walked down the hall and he sat me down and I started working. <laughs> so that, that's how I got started in features. But it, I was looking for maybe a year before that happened. And uh, then I was an assistant for a couple years until I broke into supervising. And Woody Allen hired me on radio days, which was quite a great thing yes it was a great movie and in those days woody was um i'm not saying he's not involved now but he was he was at the mix every day and he was very hands-on it was very exciting to to work on films of his and that was the beginning of my career as a as a supervisor
1: so you've worked with Woody Allen for many years. Many ago. years, yeah. Yeah. And could you describe your relationship with him?
0: It's a working relationship, mm-hmm. I would say strictly. <laughs> you know. Woody doesn't tend to hang out and chat like Jim Jarmish, who I worked with for many years. Jim Jarmish and Woody Allen are kind of opposites in that regard. <laughs> so working with Woody, he's very he's very nice, he's very appreciative of what we do, his time is limited. So when he comes, he wants to see the work, make the changes he wants to make, and be on his way. So it's not anything against anyone, it's just the way he is. He's very scheduled. (laughs) So, but he's very nice to work with.
1: Does he give you a lot of creative leeway, or is it?
0: When I started, he was at the mix every day. Now he only comes to review. So over the years, we know what he likes and he trusts us. Plus, we work with the editor, Elisa Lepsetter. She knows what he wants. We all have a mutual goal, which we work towards before we bring him in, and we're very careful not to show him our work until we feel very comfortable with it. So we spend a lot of time perfecting Woody Allen movies before he sees it. And when he walks in and watches it, usually he's pleased and... He'll have a handful of comments, but generally he's very pleased with what we've done. I work with Lee Dichter on those films, and Lee Dichter and I have been doing this together for many years, so we kind of collaborate with each other and just get to that place we know that's going to please Woody. So
1: And Jim Jeremouche is the opposite. Opposite and-
0: Jim. <laughs> Jim comes to the mix, and we hang out and laugh and talk and... We also work, (laughs) and that's also fun and cool and very uh, inspiring. But Jim is a storyteller. He's an amazing comic, I would say. (laughs) So it's just a joy to have him come in and and work with him. Jim and I started on Mystery Train, and we kind of hit it off right off the bat. So I've been doing all his movies also.
1: While we're on the subject of directors, uh, you also worked on one of my favorite films, The Royal Bombs*. Yeah. So what was it like working with Wes Anderson?
0: Wes was great. Wes knew exactly what he wanted, and he asked for the whole universe. Wes wants everything imaginable at the mixing stage. And a lot of it he doesn't keep, but he knows what he wants to try. So he has a gigantic imagination, as we all know. And uh, it was, for sound, it was creating things from imaginary places and creating different colors that you didn't necessarily expect to feel. That film was so good that we had our preview for that film and it scored so high that they didn't edit one frame of the picture after the preview. It just worked. It was just one of those movies that everything about it just felt right. Yeah. He would spend all day with us at the mix. We'd listen to everything and decide yay or nay, you know, because there was a lot. And it's a simple, it's actually a simple film. Mm-hmm. And it didn't call for a lot of sound. So we chose carefully what to keep in it. All I know is we had a really good time. And everybody knew we were working on a a really good film. So everyone was charged up about it.
1: Let's move away from talking about specific directors and kind of talk about uh, your approach slash process to sound design a little bit. When you're uh, hired to work on a picture, I assume you have a pool of people that you normally work with.
0: Yeah. Well, I I spot with the director. I don't bring anyone else into that because... It's hard to, like, go into that place where you come up with ideas with a lot of people around. So I do that on my own, and then I'll meet with each person that's in charge of their certain aspect and go through all the ideas and all the notes and all the issues, and off we go. And lots of times, we don't have a lot of time. New York films don't get a lot of time. So sometimes it's not until I receive everything that I go back and tweak things to get ready for the mix. Like Foley, for instance, I don't go to the Foley stage. Mm -hmm. I don't have time. Some supervisors can go, but we don't have time here. So I wait till it comes back, and if there's anything out of place, we ask them to do it again, and that's how that goes. Of course, I give them notes up front. And lots of times I like to record outside the Foley studio itself. You know, lots of the films we work on are in... Apartments in New York or homes around. And I find recording in a real location is the way to go, even with all its problems and issues. So I work with a bunch of Foley people who do that. And actually, they've turned a house now into a Foley studio. Oh, cool. Which has always been the kind of ambition here. Because we're not doing giant yeah. special effects movies like in L.A. as much as Smaller, intimate films.
1: Well, what do you do on the pictures uh, beyond supervising? I the do the,
0: the sound design aspects and the effects. I used to be a dialogue editor. Before I supervised, I was the dialogue editor. But effects is kind of where you do the magic, so <laughs> I, I gravitated toward that. You know, that's where the imaginary world lives, in the sound design. Do you
1: mix as well? Yeah, I mix the effects side. I, I mix don't, your own effects.
0: I, yeah, I don't mix an entire film myself because mm-hmm. I've never gotten to that point where I can say, oh, I'm going to mix your dialogue whereas some other sound supervisors have. But for me, it's somebody else who's mm-hmm. perfected that craft, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so, so I stick with the effects side.
1: Film comes in, you get the dialogue from the picture editor you have a meeting with your dialogue editor. Yeah. Are you sitting with them again before you go to mix or like how hands on are you? Issues, with?
0: Only on specific issues. Cuz I mean these people have been with me for quite a long time and we know what the hazards are generally, but sometimes a particular thing will just need attention. So we'll we'll sit and talk over that stuff. I did Lost City of Z this past summer. Mhm and it was shot in Columbia in the rainforest. So there were a lot of challenges in that dialogue, and before we started dialogue editing, we brought out all the stuff that we have to try and focus the sound, and we determined what we could save and what we couldn't save before we started editing. It would become a huge ADR, and it was also in the, the director's interest not to loop because the performance were, you know, live in the Amazon. It's hard to get back there yeah. in an ADR studio. So in that particular case, we, you know, we saved stuff before we edited it to know we could. And then when the editor got it, they refined that technique. Everybody was very pleased. There's there's some great tools now that we can use for, I'm sure you've heard the isotope stories. yeah. <laughs> You just have to be careful with it. Yeah, you can take it too far. If you take it too far. I worked on another movie. I won't mention any names, but somebody decided just to generally isotope everything. That didn't work out you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we tend to EQ the stuff before we isotope so that if there's anything that we can actually EQ out, then isotope isn't worrying about it um and then cedar usually comes after isotope and we mix in the ADR that goes with it and we're, we're on our way
1: so when you're doing sound design for the listeners right now we're in this is your sound design room yeah. where you do the majority of your work yeah i noticed that you had sound miner up on one of the screens there yeah. uh
0: how, do you
1: do a lot of original recording for films or do you mostly work with library or
0: we try to do as much original as we can for every film um Lost City of Z was in the Amazon, so instead of recording myself, I reached out to recordists that I found that had been in the Amazon, and we bought and mm-hmm. people gave us recordings. Lots of the films we work on are in New York City, and the sound of New York is always changing. Like, I think it was two years ago, the cops added this very low frequency i forget what they call it uh that's funny you should mention that because we
1: were walking last evening and a police car went by and we were like what is that i've never heard i I haven't heard that one before so
0: that was not available yeah uh, of course so we went out and recorded that which sounds easier than it actually is you know you're dealing with police luckily we found one guy who said i'm gonna drive around the block and come by and when I come by I'll turn it on. <laughs> and, you know? So we did get the sound. But even the the traffic in New York is changing and you have to keep recording. The car horns all change over the years and so yeah, we keep recording. And the, the film Patterson I just did with okay. Jim Jarmusch, there's a bus in this movie and they didn't record anything for it. So... They got the bus, they drove halfway, they met halfway, and found some quiet spot, and Carl did a full recording on that particular bus. Unfortunately, that bus has, it, it's a, if you see the film, it's It's obvious why Jim chose it, and it's one of a kind, and it doesn't run that well. <laughs> <laughs> so Carl recorded everything that he could with that bus, and it definitely is the base of the sound for the film, but we had to augment it with library stuff that, that we have. So, yeah, we do record for... That's the whole goal of, of the soundtrack is for it to feel authentic. And to be true and honest to the film. So anything we need to do to get there is, you know, how we go forward. You know, you don't you don't want to question what you're hearing as an audience. You don't want it to distract you from the story. So everything that we do, we we strive to be authentic and real. And it it becomes an issue because you You go to the producer, I need so much money to record this car for our film. And they give you the money under duress. You get it all arranged. You record the car. And there's issues. There's always issues. So exactly what you need is not what you get most of the time. (laughs) Even though they try as hard as they Mm -hmm. can. So... Lots of sound editing is overcoming issues that seem like they cannot be overcome. I mean, that's a big part of sound editing. So mm-hmm. it's very rewarding when you overcome them, <laughs> but very nerve wracking on the way. <laughs> so, but that's a big part of it
1: you mentioned earlier that you thought new york pictures had uh, a shorter amount of time to work on than the the hollywood counterparts probably because they're more action oriented maybe yeah Uh, what what is a typical schedule for you
0: an average kind of film usually is two months of edit and then 15 days of mixing that's mid-size film in new york uh Smaller films get less. You know, you get five or six weeks and then you mix for 10 days. The bigger films I've done in New York, I have more time and more mix time. So they're probably more similar to L.A. They did Beauty and the Beast here at Harbor. Oh, cool. Warren Shaw did it. And he was on the movie for a year. (laughs) So (laughs) that's very unusual for New York, you know. I, I probably did eight or nine movies while he worked on Beauty and the Beast, you know. Mm-hmm. There's pluses and minuses to that, you know. I I enjoy being able to meet a lot of filmmakers and work a lot on a lot of different movies, so I guess that's a positive part <laughs> of being in New York, yeah
1: you do like at your imdb page is seemingly endlessly long with all the projects yeah. that you've worked on yeah. and i noticed recurring as we mentioned earlier woody mm-hmm. allen uh lee daniels seems to be doing yeah. all of his pictures with you yeah. uh, what are you bringing to the table that they keep coming back to you for
0: uh, my answer will be humble and maybe that's what they like about me <laughs> because i try to i i try to understand them and fulfill their vision and I'm sure all sound editors do the same thing but I hit it off with the directors I hit it off with because they asked me to do something and I usually find it and they are thrilled because that's what they were hoping for and there's also a personality thing that happens is Lee Daniels is incredible talent, and he's off the cuff a lot. He likes to experiment, and I love to also. So I go with it, whatever it is he's dreaming up. I say, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. And and I don't know if everybody does that. I have no idea, but that's how I go about it. So I think Lee likes that about me. You know, he he likes he likes to be going along, and all of a sudden he makes a complete U-turn and goes in a totally different direction. And none of us have prepared for that. And it's the middle of the night <laughs> and we have to cook something up and we're gonna cook it up tonight. And I enjoy that. That's exciting to me. So filmmakers maybe me gravitate to that. I, I don't really know because I don't see it from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think I'm really easygoing and I try to understand the film that they created and their vision for it and listen to both. The film has its own place in that regard because sometimes the director's vision is different than what the film is actually saying. And so we realize that and we try to find out what actually the film needs. You know, it's funny because you do this, all, you know, years and you do it every day, but when I actually am doing it, there's a certain amount of like joy and satisfaction that goes into it because you come up with something and it's really great. And like the film I'm working on now, um, Rebel in the Rye, a big part of this film is the inner journey of the character and the director asked me to create the inner journey with sound the destination is is unknown it's a complete unknown so you have to start just start yeah then you find things and you keep working on them and you embellish them and change them and then you arrive you finally arrive on what you think is 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 cool so I enjoy that process.
1: So earlier you mentioned that with Woody Allen, you try and get it as perfect as you can before he even sees it. Yeah. In these situations like you're describing where you're just trying to figure it out as you're going, are you doing a lot of back and forth and iterations with the director? Or? In
0: this case, yeah. I, Danny came in. I did a pass on a couple reels, and I, I asked him to come in before I did the whole movie to just see if we were going in the direction. And he came in and we actually worked together. He spent the day with me. <clears throat> and we changed things and you know, it was a it was a good collaboration cuz um I was on the right track and we were happy with the material, but sometimes he wanted something different to happen. And we're going to do it again before we mix it. I just sent him the last batch of stuff. <laughs> so So we're gonna get together and go through that process again. And some filmmakers are interested in that and some are, are interested in waiting for the mix. Like Jim Jarmusch rarely comes by because for him the process gets in the way of the creativity, in a way. He likes to come to the mixing studio, let us mix a scene or two, and then listen. And then comment, and then go, get into it. And uh, he ignores us while we're working because he doesn't like. It affects him. He doesn't like to hear what's being done.
1: He doesn't want to know how you got there. He just wants. He doesn't want to
0: hear it because I think if he hears too many variations of the theme, it takes him longer to get to where he wanted to be. You know, so he likes us it to him, and then he knows if it's hitting what he wants. In um, Patterson, there's a. There's a scene where there's a rapper in a laundromat and there's a sneaker going around in the washing machine. And the sneaker is creating the beat that the rapper is creating his song to. And I took a shot at it. You know, it, it's got to be just right. It can't be off. If it's off, yeah. it's fake. You That's know? an interesting challenge for yeah, sure. So it was a challenge. So I brought in the editor, Fonzi Alfonso. It's a really great great editor and he he listened and the first pass he felt what I did was too much it was hitting it over the head you know (laughs) so then I backed off on it and changed it and actually then we brought Jim in was the kind of thing you don't want to wait for that kind of thing till the mix because if you're not close then you know hours go by (laughs) trying to get it right so I brought him in for that and we were very close but he had some very specific things that weren't quite right that we changed but i believe we hit it <laughs> <laughs> so and that kind of thing is jim jarmusch's sense of humor you know that it's inherently funny but you don't want it to be over the top funny mm-hmm. you know so you have to walk that thin line and that's generally the the way we do things in Jim Jarmusch films. Is we lock, walk a very thin line of hearing funny and feeling funny mm-hmm. or not. Yeah, they're not you exactly
1: know, like punchline funny. It's yeah, situational funny. It's atmospheric. Yeah, it, yeah. And yeah
0: and so they're very. It's a very creative thing, to do the sound on a Jim Jarmusch movie, and it's a lot of fun, but it's very challenging also to get that. Just right, mm-hmm. yeah, and a little bit hard to describe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about how New York as a Sound Post community has changed over the years. Uh-huh.
0: <clears throat> well, at Sound One, it was a family. It was So you were
1: full-time to- at Sound One?
0: No, I was freelance, okay. but I had my own room, which they built for me. I was not part of Sound One, but... Spent most of your time there. Pretty much there. Mm-hmm. And the picture departments and the sound departments were together like family. And every Friday night there was a party in somebody's room and we'd all get together and we just went from movie to movie and uh the community knew everybody knew everybody. And then something changed like in the early 90s people started becoming more private and not as open and it wasn't share time anymore it was this film is proprietary no one's allowed in that's that's how the business has become pretty much Mm -hmm. so um and then everyone started spreading out. So it's no longer the community. It was at a glance, but still New York, is still feels like a family because we all do try and get together at on occasions in New York. And we all try to, we work with each other all the time. So it still is a small community, but it's not, The kind of thing where we spend time with each other every Friday night, Mm -hmm. which we did back in those days. And a lot of people work out of home now, which is a big change. So, you know, some people aren't even in New York. They're in other states working. And they just come in when they need to. It's not as tight-knit as it used to be. And when we created Harbor, we wanted to bring some of that back. That's part of the reason we're here, because <laughs> picture departments are upstairs, and we wanted to try and recreate that bond where you know filmmakers are making films together, they're not mm-hmm. you know departmentalized as much. It's nice, like the Jim Jarmusch film was upstairs when I worked on it, and I'd just drop in on occasion and we'd all hang out and goof around and talk, you know. And that's really nice to be able to do that. Yeah, um, and it can happen again, whereas not many places have that anymore. Were you working out of Sound One when it went under? Yeah, you were. Okay,
1: I was. So, did you see that coming, or was that just you came in one day and uh, the lock a, was on the door? A, this
0: is such an interesting story. That there's a window in front of the Brill Building that's kind of blacked out. And one day I walked by it and I saw a sign that said, two floors re- will be welcoming new industries in 2000 two and whatever it was, 14, I can't remember. And I saw this sign and I'm on, the two floors mentioned were my floors and one of our the big mixing studios, two big mixing studios of San Juan. So I went upstairs and I said, you guys see that sign out there, by the way? And this was like July. And everyone said, nah, that sign doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about that sign. So then that group bought San Juan, that equity group bought San Juan. And the owner of that equity group came to meet me like two days after they made the deal. And he sat down with me and he said, you know, we're going to do great things together. We're going to put a lot of money into this business. And it's so nice to meet you and on and on and on. And we shook hands and he left. And then two days later, I came downstairs and I saw one of the San Juan employees crying. And I said, uh, uh, that's, that's over. San Juan is over and went back in, and they they had announced that they were closing the company. And they gave us a week to get out. And I was in the middle of a James Gray film called The Immigrant. We were mixing, and you can't go to James Gray and say, oh, by the way, (laughs) you, you know, we're leaving, we're done, it's all over, we can't finish your film, you know. So we fought with those guys, and we got an extra week so we could finish the film. But then we had to leave. We just had to pick up and leave. And I was going on to another movie. And um, the gang I'm with here at Harbor went somewhere else. And it did not work out on any level. (laughs) At all. And we happened to get a call from Zach, who's the president of Harbor Picture Company. So we came over and it was instantly obvious that this is where we should be. And we met Zach and it just happened that fast. We saw that this was a place for filmmakers, you know, and Zach is a filmmaker and everybody who works for him are filmmakers. Even though there are business-running editing facilities, so we cooked up Harbor, and it definitely brought life to New York that seemed to have vanished. Before Harbor, Warner Brothers wasn't really mm-hmm. going at that point. There were a couple other places, but not enough for the mm-hmm. the town. You know, everyone was worried. Where are we going to mix our movies? Mm-hmm. Everybody was excited that. We pulled this off and did it, (laughs) so it worked out. But now we have this space, and we also have a space on Hudson Street with editing and a television mixing room. Mm -hmm. So we have three locations now. And when we started, we just planned one studio and four editing rooms. That, That was the idea. Now we have ADR and think we have five studios now harbor grand is like our big studio which is uh atmos
1: and when you're mixing the woody allen films in atmos
0: no <laughs> that that day will never come the evolution of woody from mono to stereo is huge and then finally we convinced them that we have to mix five one because the projections just don't understand what to do with his movies you know so we We do mix 5-1, I don't think he worries about it anymore, but when the transition started from mono to stereo, we had to really convince him. There was a scene, there was quiet dialogue, and I think there was an opera going. The score was very intense, and the ideal way to mix it was dialogue in the middle and the music out. Spread it out, yeah. So we talked for probably weeks about whether we should present Woody with this alternative which he told us many times. He was not interested. Movies come out of the center. That's where they come from. So finally we got up the nerve to say, Woody this is an alternative. What do you think? And he liked it. (laughs) And he said, if you guys think that works better, go for it. But it was a while back. You know, It's been a long time since we did Mono.
1: Thank you very much for talking to us. Sure, this was really great. Yeah, uh, as I said, you worked on some of my favorite films. Yeah. You? So uh, in addition, to Royal Tenenbaum's Dead Man. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I could list on and on, but yeah. uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It was nice
0: to talk to you. Yeah.
1: Great. <laughs> Okay, well, it's stopped raining here on our camping trip, and it's a beautiful day. So thanks for listening to the episode today. I think Bob Hine's really great. I hope you guys got something out of it. So thanks to everyone who listens to the show. Thanks to Stacey Dupass for letting us bend and twist her voice in the bumpers. Thanks to uh, Bob Hine for letting us invade his space and taking the time to talk to us while we're in New York City. Stay tuned for more of the long-form interviews from our New York series. I'm getting eaten alive by flies here, so... Feel free to uh, help us out if you're doing any shopping at Amazon or B&H by using our affiliate link. You can find it on our website. You can also just donate money on our website by leaving us a tip. It's much appreciated. As we always say, we're not making any money. We're just trying to break even. So from uh, Canada's wild north, I'm signing out. Have a good one, everybody. Bye. Thanks for
0: listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at, info at ToneBendersPodcast.com.